So we're going to focus for the rest of this session on social action ministry in our churches. And I'll, I'll, so as, as part of the SHORE program, we've got various groups who are delivering various pieces of work, and one of those has this incredibly exciting name, Package Group 9, Raising the Profile and Priority of Social Justice and Ministry with the Poor. It's an exciting title, isn't it? That's good. Raising the Priority and Profile of Social Justice and Ministry with the Poor. Uh, the leader of that group is Pete Linden, based in Bristol, and uh, he's been working on this with the team. Thank you very much, Pete, for being brilliant. And, and Miles Jarvis is really championing this within our team. And these guys have been looking at how we raise the profile of social action within our churches. But that really raises a question. You see, before we think about how raising the profile of social action, we first have to be clear about why we should bother to do it. And so I'm going to take a few minutes to address that question. And I want to talk to you this morning about living out the good news. Okay, living out the good news. Let me just start by asking you a question. The question is this. Have you ever had a crisis of confidence? Has that ever happened to you? A moment when you have this crisis of confidence. It can happen to anyone. You think you're doing well. You think you're going somewhere. And then suddenly you start to doubt. And you see it, for example, football matches, right? Penalty shootout. Up come the England players. And you just see in their faces this crisis of confidence. It doesn't seem to happen to the Germans, does it? doesn't happen to them. But the English players, it doesn't happen to the Brazilians if they ever have a penalty shootout, but it, it come, it, the English players, there's something on their faces, and you know, even before they've kicked it, this isn't going in. It can happen, you, you, you have an exam, right? You go in, you do the exam, you finish the exam, you come out, and afterwards you're going, oh man, I must have answered that wrong. Especially if there's that conversation, what did you get for question three, and everyone else's answer's different to yours. <laughs> you ever had that kind of moment? Or, or the job interview, you come out and you go, oh, I didn't answer that question. Oh, why didn't I think of this? Moments of of crisis. Parenting. You get moments with your kids when you wonder, have I got this right? I, I think I'm doing the right thing. I'm not sure. Um, in leadership, you make a leadership call and then you go away and you wonder if you got it right. I, I mean, on the midlife crisis, have I taken the right path? Have I wasted my life? Crisis of confidence. You can even have it as a Christian. Do I really believe this stuff? You know, ever had those kind of moments? They can happen to us all. And if it's ever happened to you, take heart, because the Apostle Paul seems to have had a bit of a time like that as well. And he was a great man. He was a zealous man. He was a man on fire. Miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. Saw Jesus. Went on to serve Jesus with passion. A guy that wrote at least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. A guy who endured great opposition, planted churches, took the gospel across the known world. And yet there's a moment in Galatians 1 where he seems to have had a bit of a crisis of confidence. Can we believe that of Paul? Now, what happens in the first two chapters of Galatians is Paul is telling some of his personal story. He's explaining some of his own personal life. And he's doing that for a reason. He tells his story in order to defend his ministry to the church in Galatia. The Galatian church, they're being led astray by false teachers. And Paul is trying to help the church to hang on to the truth and not be led astray. It's quite a cross letter, Galatians. He's quite... You know, he's not particularly polite, Paul, in that letter. He, he, he starts off, it's a real howler of a letter. But he starts by defending his own, his own ministry and his message. And I'll skim some of it quite quickly, and you can read it for yourself later on if you want. But Galatians 1, starting with verse 11 to 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me 
is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so we've got Paul there defending himself and his gospel. And then the next verses, he tells the story of how he used to persecute the church. And then he met Jesus and everything changed. So verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Just pause there. So that's Paul's background. Converted through a miraculous encounter with Christ. Paul had this, this transforming moment where he went from hating Jesus and persecuting the church through to loving Jesus and building the church. And after his conversion, we then get this little detail. I didn't really consult with anyone. I basically got on with preaching the gospel. Didn't need any help. I got, saw Jesus, all made sense, understood you know, all my Judaism. This suddenly makes sense, knew who the Messiah was, started preaching the gospel, cracked on with it. And I did that, he says, for 14 years, and then he had some kind of crisis, which can happen to even the most confident people. So chapter 2, verse 1. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and I set before them, privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Just stop there. Paul had been at this for 14 years. 14 years of preaching, working miracles, planting churches, writing the New Testament, suffering, persecution, prison, all these things he'd gone through. And then he has this moment, 14 years in, when he goes up to Jerusalem to check it out. It sounds to me like a bit of a crisis of confidence. I need to make sure that I am not running in vain. What would that mean, to be running in vain, to be doing something empty? He was in fear that he'd got it wrong. And this isn't just a blip for Paul. This isn't a, a, you know, a two-minute wonder during, during a quiet afternoon. I wonder if I got this right. It's not that. This is a guy who's fully passionate in everything he does. He's full of zeal. So for him to drop everything that he's doing... To put that all aside, to travel to Jerusalem, which would have been no small task in itself. I mean, didn't just jump on a plane for an afternoon. I mean, he's travelled all the way to Jerusalem. And to then find the apostles and to sit down before them and express his message and say, I just need you to tell me that I've got this right, that I'm not running in vain. That's a pretty serious moment. Is there a crisis of confidence? Is it all the false teaching that's going on? Is he looking at churches like Galatia and saying... Goodness, is people coming in after me with a different message? What if they're right and I'm wrong? What if I've missed it? This is a serious moment. What if they said he had it wrong? Or what if they said, it's not that you're wrong, you're just a little bit off balance, actually, Paul. You, you need to go back and correct some stuff in all these churches. What if that had happened? All the effort, all the churches planted, all the sacrifice, the letters, the suffering, the rejection, the persecution. What if it was all in vain? What if his encounter with Jesus, what if that had just been in his head? Or, or what if he'd been deceived and misunderstood it? A crisis of confidence. The result for Paul, of course, is encouraging, as we see in, in chapter 2 and verse 6. Those who seem to be influential 
added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me. I love that moment there, the right hand of fellowship, a ringing endorsement, the right hand of fellowship, if we may, Miles, is going to be my little volunteer here. It's a physical gesture, shaking hands, usually made by someone superior to somebody inferior. <laughs> Thank you, Miles. <laughs> that's, that, that's, what it, that's literally what it meant. I mean, you know, the right hand of fellowship, it, it meant something. It meant being welcomed in by, by somebody of superior rank, if you like, bringing them in. And Paul uses that phrase about it saying that he was welcomed in. The apostles effectively saying, Paul, you are welcomed in to our inner circle. You, you and Barnabas, we welcome you as our own. We, we're welcoming you into the apostolic band of the early church, recognising that you were called and appointed by God to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Great news for Paul. Reassuring, Paul, you're doing well. Your message is correct. God is using you just as much as he's using Peter. All right, well, that's quite an encouragement. And there was a moment there, a wonderful moment, and Paul probably felt some sort of a flood of relief, I'd have thought. The fact that he's gone this way to do it. I mean, he wasn't just doing it for his own entertainment one afternoon. If he's gone, I mean, he says it in, in the Bible, he says, I did it to make sure I wasn't running my race in vain. He, he, he was aware of possible problems. And so he gets this welcome, and it, what a moment that must have been. And it just, it goes like this, the apostles who had been with Jesus confirmed that he'd got it right. That's quite good. These are the guys, I mean, John and Peter, or James was Jesus' brother, but John and Peter, they had walked with Jesus for three years, and they're saying, you got it, Paul. There's nothing we need to add to your message. On the contrary, we recognise you called him, we welcome you in. But then he adds this one thing, chapter 2, verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. So let's catch this. Paul goes to Jerusalem to check out his ministry and his teaching, to check he had it right. The apostles go all over his message, checking all the details of it, going into him, asking him questions, no doubt. What do you say about this? How do you handle that? And they end up confirming that he's got it right, that he's teaching the truth. He's in line with Jesus' mission. He's doing well. And they add just this one thing. You must remember the poor. And Paul says, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. And this tells us some key things. The first thing it tells us is this, that the, is that the content of our gospel matters. We can get that on the screen. The content of the gospel matters. There is a difference between what is true and what is not true. Not all truth is relative. It, when it comes to our beliefs about God and the gospel, it isn't logical that something could be true for me and not true for you. Actually, truth is, is truth. And a belief about God might seem right or feel right to us, and we may be very sincere and well-intentioned, but that's not enough. It also has to be true. It has to be correct. We can be well-intentioned and very, very wrong. Uh, does that make sense? Being sincere isn't enough. We need to be walking in truth, or we could be running in vain. Now, I'm not saying that we have to agree on every tiny detail. I mean, top-level theologians right, disagree about stuff all the time. But there are some truths about God that we should know. And, and remember, of course, belief affects our behaviour. What we believe the gospel message to be, and what we believe it to encompass within it, will affect the way that we lead our churches. 
It will affect the kind of church we try to build. It will affect the message that we preach. It will affect the way that we treat people. It will affect what we prioritise, what we give time and attention to, what we pour our money into, what we promote within our churches, what sort of leaders we develop and release. It will affect what our church is focused on and, and where our leadership time goes. And if we get that wrong, it appears we could be spending some of our time in vain, building nothing, doing the wrong thing. It matters. It does matter to us what the content of the gospel actually is, because it affects what we do. Second thing we can learn from this, it tells us that Jesus' gospel message is about much more than just personal salvation. Now, don't get me wrong, it starts with the cross, right? That's of first importance. Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, died in our place on the cross, paid the price for our sin, buried, rose to life again three days later, defeated sin and Satan and death, turn to the Father, coming back again, and through faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness and eternal life. That's where it starts, right? Repentance from dead works, faith in Christ, changing our mind about God, putting our trust in him, that comes first. And having now given our life to Jesus, the gospel then starts to affect every area of our life. We become more and more like Jesus, growing in holiness, learning to follow his calling on our life. Becoming a Christian affects how we live and how we treat one another. And in the church, and in our families, and in our workplaces, and our communities, and our relationships, they're all affected. And it seems that one of the areas that is also affected is how we treat the poor. It seems that that is a crucial part of the gospel. Jesus told us to love our neighbour as much as we love ourselves. And when Jesus was challenged with a question, well then, who is my neighbour? He responded with, what story? The story of the Good Samaritan, which made it clear that neighbour simply meant a person in need, even if that person might be someone you view as an enemy. Genuine faith in Jesus resulted in practical, loving actions. And so there's a third thing we learned from this, which is that remembering the poor is a crucial part of the gospel. From the earliest days of the church, James, John, Peter, leading that first church, based in Jerusalem, when they considered what is the essential message of the gospel, the real basics when you boil it down and examine it, they said to Paul, it must include remembering the poor. This is absolutely crucial. And why would that be the case? Well, surely those first apostles knew the heart of Jesus firsthand. When he began his ministry, he described his calling like this. From Luke chapter 4, verse 8 to 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So Jesus' ministry began with a clear declaration that he was here to bring good news to the poor. And of course, the poor includes those who are spiritually poor, people that don't know God, who are dead to him, they're spiritually poor. So that's absolutely part of it. And it also includes those who are physically poor in all sorts of ways. Ways. People in need, people who are sick, people in prison, the oppressed, they matter as well. And I believe that it would also, of course, include those who are poor within the church, as well as those outside of the church. Sometimes the poor we need to help are people that are meeting with us every week. They, they count as well. Fourth thing we can learn from this, it tells us that care for the poor was and is an apostolic priority. The apostles in Jerusalem were focused in on it. And Paul is keen to do it. This is the thing I'm eager to do. In fact, we see Paul putting this into practice in his ministry. I mean, this is a guy that took up a collection from some of his churches for the poor believers 
in the Jerusalem church and made a point of taking it and delivering it personally, which would have taken time and effort. Care for the poor was clearly a priority for him, an apostolic foundation he laid into churches. And if this is the case, if these things are true, if what we believe about the gospel matters, if it's about more than just personal salvation, if remembering the poor is crucial to the gospel and it's part of our apostolic priority, then I believe that we can say this, that every Christian... And every church, we'll put this on the screen, every Christian and every church has a part to play in caring for the poor. Can I hear an amen? amen? This is crucial. Care for the poor was a foundation stone in the early church. They were known for caring for the poor and for the needy. Even as early as Acts chapter 6, we see that there is a program taking place in a church to feed widows who had nobody else to look after them. And then they had to put a bunch of guys in place to sort it out because it wasn't working properly. Yeah? There, were, there were arguments and divisions and, and they took an, an effort to actually sort this, this out. And we get instructions on how to care for widows. There's actually instructions on you know, widow feeding ministries in the church. We're told how they should run and who should be included and who shouldn't be included. And there may not be instructions like that for running a food bank, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of these things. Every church, and I believe every Christian, has a part to play in caring for the poor. And when you look at this with Paul, the apostles, they asked him that this emphasis, you must remember the poor. Now, why is it that they urged Paul to remember the poor? It's not this one thing, Paul, you must remember grace. They didn't say that. Or this one thing, Paul, you must remember full immersion water baptism. Don't forget that, Paul. They didn't say, oh, Paul, you must remember repentance when in your gospel. Make sure you get to repentance. Don't want a light gospel. No, no, that, forget all of those. They said, remember the poor. Why? Why is that the one that they focused on? And for me, I believe the answer is this, that it's the one that is most easily forgotten because the poor are not the people that are always sitting in our church meetings week by week. So it's very easy to forget in our middle class life what's going on in the world around us. And the bottom line is this, God cares about the poor and those in need. The Bible's full of verses describing our call to remember the poor. I'll just give you a few examples of many, many that I could have chosen. Psalm 82, verse 3 to 4, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what can we say about that? We've got to care for the poor because God commands us to. Care for the poor. Defend the weak and the fatherless. We're called to do it. How about Proverbs 19, verse 17? Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So we should care for the poor because he notices, and he remembers, and it's as though we've done it for him. I think somebody else said that. Proverbs 29, verse 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor. The wicked have no such concern. Do you care about justice for the poor? Yeah. Should do. And how about New Testament, James 1 verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Listen, this, this is James who wrote the book, James, book of James. James from Jerusalem. James who told Paul that his gospel was okay. James who gave him the right hand of fellowship. It's that James, James the brother of Jesus, who said to Paul, or sorry, who says to us and our churches, how are you going to express your faith? Two things to express true faith that God loves. Care for the poor, orphans and widows, and don't get polluted by the world. It seems that God gives equal weight 
to caring to the poor as he does to living a life of personal holiness. And in fact, it seems that caring for the poor is mentioned first. And that means it really does have a high priority. God expects us to care for the poor just as much as he expects us to worry about becoming Christ-like. Do you get that? It is as important that you care for the poor as that you deal with the issues of sin in your life and your church. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. But even before that, look after orphans and widows. That's what God's looking for. I think that is crucial. Let that sink in. So if you feel like you're in a bit of a spiritual crisis today, if you're having a crisis of confidence about your ministry, if you go through week by week as a church leader and sometimes find yourself wondering, why do I bother? You have Sunday meetings and you go home and think, what was the point? Perhaps you've had moments where you've wondered, what am I achieving with my life? I've put myself into this church. It's mundane, routine, week by week. What's the point? Am I wasting my life? Should I even be doing this? Is my church going anywhere? Are we even achieving anything in our town? If you're having that kind of crisis, there's a question you need to ask yourself. Is it possible, I'll put this on the screen, is it possible that you've forgotten about Jesus' call to care for the poor? Because if all you're doing is running meetings, you're missing 50% of what God's looking for. doing this job why do i do this role why do i put myself into it it's just hard work we get nowhere nothing's ever achieved if you've forgotten to care for the poor well, let me phrase it differently what are you doing practically to put the gospel call to care for the poor into action how are you personally and you as a church living out this part of the call to live out the good news of course you don't have to be having a crisis of confidence to care about the poor getting involved with social action will make a huge difference to your walk with Jesus and a huge difference to your church and how people in your church feel about your church and how people in the community feel about your church and I believe how God feels about your church. Whatever your starting point, when we serve the poor, we actually benefit. We get to give. We get to sow into God's kingdom. We get to make a genuine difference. We make room for God to undo just a little bit more of our selfishness. We get to learn that it really is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Being good news to the poor is part of Jesus' calling to every Christian. It's part of proclaiming the kingdom of God. So it should be a priority in every church. It's not an interruption to your mission. It's not an interruption to the things that you do. It is your mission. It is the things that you do. It's what God calls us to. And when we step out in faith like this, we should expect him to work through us. And that makes a difference. We're called to stand up for those in need, but don't do it on your own. God's heart is for the poor. He'll do it with us. Let me tell you about an initiative we launched at Welcome Church recently. Okay, just an example. As a church, we're involved with all sorts of social action, as I know many of you are as well. Um, we, We looked at it and discovered that it was all fairly dispersed. So there were things that people were doing in a little corner over here and things people were doing in a corner over there and this passionate person would do that but nobody really knew much about it. And, and it was a little bit peripheral, really important, lots of them, but kind of peripheral. So we made a, a decision to do something to draw them together and implement a new approach to this area of church life and we called it, click, Welcome Works. There we go, Welcome Works. And it's interesting because it's an expansion of something we did back at Grace Church when I run... Grace Works, and so you'll, this will seem familiar to those of you from Grace Church today. We took hold of this and expanded it. Welcome Works is an umbrella that draws together all our social action ministries under one title. 
So making social action really a significant part of our strategy. We even gave it this strap line, with you, for you. It's got its own strap line. Welcome Works with you, for you. It's got its own website that links in with our own website. And it's got a, it's got a whole section detailing what we do. And as a church, we're involved with loads of different ministries and projects but what they've now all got is a home and an identity that people in the church understand. And there's some amazing things going on amongst us. Some of them we do as a church, and some of them we do in partnership with other churches or agencies. So things, for example, we've included under our Welcome Works would be things like Food Bank, uh, our Prisons Ministry, Beesom, if you've come across Beesom, Street Pastors. They're ones that people in our church are doing, and as a church, therefore, we're doing in partnership with other agencies. And then there's ones that we're doing on our own, like Debt Advice. And we're actually expanding that and setting up a CAP centre now. Um, Post-abortion healing courses, bereavement support. We run a meal called Welcome Meal for the homeless. We run Welcome Families Together for single parents. We've started an international cafe for people who speak English as a second language. We, we've also recently launched an initiative sponsoring children in Togo through Compassion UK, who were, we found brilliant to partner with and certainly tick every one of those three boxes that Simon put up earlier. And 143 children are now being sponsored in Togo by people in our church. It's just been such a breakthrough. And, and recently, a group from our church have set up a social enterprise called the Useful Wood Company, which is about helping people who have been long-term unemployed to learn new skills and get back to work. And these things are... Abs- I mean, God is so blessing us. And, and I'll tell you what, the idea of God working with you for it, we are literally, on the 1st of July, being kicked out of our building, okay, because, um, because of the building work. Our choice, by the way. We're not being kicked. We are moving out of our building because the developers say you need to move if you want us to do the job. And uh, so we, we were going to be homeless for six months. Um, and no, no, no offices, no venue. What were we going to do? Because of our social action, somebody who works with the homeless in the town and uh, heard about it said, hey, there's a guy in town who might be able to help you find a venue for your social action for the Useful Wood Company. And we said, well, that's nice. And we spoke to him. And he said, you can have this building for free. And it's big enough to incorporate everything else you want to do as a church. I'll give you a one-year, no-fee contract. It's all yours. We'll give you the keys. Enjoy it. And all I'm going to say is, isn't that amazing? We're literally signing the contract this week, I believe, and it will provide everything we want. We won't use it on Sundays, but at a push, we could probably squeeze it in across two floors. Three-floor building, and it's got more surface area than we will have when our whole building project is completed. And it was sitting empty, and it's literally a stone's throw from our building. It's even got a car park. For free. Take it because of what you're doing for the poor. I mean, we're blessed, right? We have been so utterly blessed. And God works in these things. There's, there's such a lot of stuff we had going on that we wanted to create a context where we could give these social actions greater profile. So we created this context where it was easier for people to get involved. Welcome Works gives us a more coordinated approach to these ministries. It, for example, some people need help from more than one ministry. So by drawing it together with oversight, the person that's getting capped might also need food bank and they might also need uh, bereavement support. And you suddenly find we can draw these things together and the person, the single parent that's coming on, might also want to access uh, death advice um, uh, or post-abortion support. Or These things are real and we suddenly find there's an interaction across them all. And actually we wanted to enable better sharing of resources, more smooth working alongside other churches and agencies, and to have better oversight and give better support and care to the people serving in them. So we launched this with a bit of a fanfare. We preached a series on God's heart for the poor to go along with it, because we wanted people to know that these ministries are central to the heart of Jesus, so they cannot possibly be left on the sideline of church life. 
And so we talked about them, we embraced them, we give profile to them, we wanted everybody to be involved. I just share that because I wanted you to say, this is what we've done. My question to you is this though, what's God calling your church to do? That's the question, we can put that one up. What's God calling your church to do? We're not a small church in Woking, to be honest, so you would expect to find a fair amount going on with us, right? You, 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 we've got lots, I've been able to list lots of things, that's, that's good, size of church thing. But regardless of the size of church that you're from, or the resources that are available we can all do something. And it's okay to start small and with just one thing. And perhaps you start with somebody in need even within your own church. Maybe that's where it begins. Maybe the first care for the poor you do is somebody who's within your own church. And that would be okay. I also know lots of us in this room are doing lots and lots with this. So in large part, I'm preaching to the converted on this issue. I know that. There are churches that are steaming ahead and churches that are far ahead of where we are. And... uh, I want to encourage you, though, whatever your situation is, there are some things to get excited about and and to get behind. And whatever your church's situation, the package group that has been working on social action has some things coming up to help you. The first thing is this. They're going to be visiting every hub over the next year. So at our hub meetings, we're going to get a visit from uh, Pete's guys, from Package Group 9, Miles, I know, is coming to ours as well, to talk about this and to help us consider the issue at our own local level in our own churches. They're also working to put together some resources for us. For example, they're pulling together model policies and guidance that could help. They're finding examples of best practice. They're putting together courses that we can run locally. They're they're looking to make speakers available to speak on care for the poor to our churches. Um, People you can invite to come and talk on social action and and help you. And the Jubilee Plus conference, that's coming up as well, 16th of November. Going to be in Bristol. There's postcards about that on all the tables. Are you going? And, And it might be that it's not for you, but if it's not you, is there someone in your church that's going? And this has really been put on this year in Bristol within Commission to support Commission churches. Yeah. This year, Jubilee Plus is for us. Okay, it's not, it's not from the side. This is for us, a Commission event that I want to encourage you to come to, whether you're doing loads for the poor or nothing for the poor. I bet you we've all got people in our churches that would love to come to this, that would be blessed and supported. And if you've got no one, come yourself. Now, it's possible... You've got a lot going on already, which is great. And it's possible you're sitting there thinking this. Steve, this is the last thing I need. I'm already overwhelmed. I'm too busy to do anything else for anybody else. I haven't got time to do anything. I've got no leaders. I've got no resources. I've got no money. I can't start. Who do you think you are to stand up and tell me to care for the poor? I haven't got time to do anything. That could be going on around this room right now as well. And if that is the case... I want to encourage you as well. First of all, I want to say, well, who else in your church could be released to do something? How, how could you create fertile, fertile soil that others will flourish in? Uh, who would you want to see equipped and released? Because whatever your situation, you can click on Package Group 9 want to help you. Uh, to such an extent that Pete Linden's asked me to put up his phone number and email address today. Um, and so if you're sitting there thinking anything like this, we would love to do something for the poor, but we don't know where to start, Pete would love to talk to you. If you're thinking, well, actually, there's a new area of social action we'd like to get into, but we don't know how to start that. We're doing this, but how do we expand it? They want to help you. If you're thinking, we're doing lots of different stuff, but maybe one or two aren't functioning as well as we'd quite like, they want to help you. If you're thinking, we're already doing loads and we we call it this, they want to help you because it's great to get people in to look at what we do and to be open and to be ready to be improved. Whatever your starting point, you are invited today to lean into the resources that are becoming available for you. There's stuff coming out of the Shore program, stuff that people in our churches has given to 
that's now being developed and it's available and there's nothing to stop you from buying into that and getting hold of that. And Pete's details are on the screen. And maybe you're just thinking this, well, why should I bother? Why should I do this stuff at all? I've already got too much on. I'll tell you why you should bother. Bother because God's heart is for the poor. Bother because Jesus said he was here to bring good news to the poor. Bother because it's an apostolic priority for every church and every Christian. Bother because it's actually part of the gospel. And finally, you should bother for this reason. Because there are people in your town, your city, your village, who are in need today in all sorts of ways. There are people who are desperate because they cannot pay their bills. There are people on suicide edge because they can't pay their bills. And it's true in your town. I guarantee it in your town today that's going on. There are refugees in your community who are isolated and lonely. There are children in your town who will go to bed tonight hungry. And we could make a difference. We really could. And Jesus said we should be good news to the poor. I'll finish with this verse and then we're going to pray and then it's coffee time. Jesus, this is what Isaiah 58 says. Spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Oh, why should I bother? I'm tired. I'm busy. Spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. And then you'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Can we pray? Let's stand together. I want to pray and then it's coffee time. Father, Thank you that you love and care for the poor. What a privilege that we follow a God who cares about those in need. Thank you, Lord, that you are not impressed by the powerful, but instead you care for the needy. Thank you, Lord, that a bruised reed you will not break, a smouldering wick you will not puff out. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not look for the powerful and the mighty, but you look for the poor and the downcast, for the lost and the broken. Jesus, would you give us your heart to do the same? Lord, I pray for our churches and I pray for the people in our churches. Let every one of us be involved in caring for the poor. Let commission be known as a family of churches that care about the poor, that are involved in social action, that care about our communities. Lord, spare us from just having religious meetings. Lord God, would you help us also to go forward with this call to care for the poor, Lord, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and, and everything else that comes with that in our culture today, to care for the needy in the nations of the world, to care for the needy in our towns and the needy in our church. Living God, motivate us, equip us, resource us, drive us, show us the way, and thank you that you walk with us. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we do this, we are putting our feet in your footsteps. Lord, we don't leave us on our own. You stand with us in caring for the poor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.